Thank you very much, ladies. Well, I hope that you can say, at least for my part, I hope that you can agree with me that we've had a great day so far. I know I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it's great to see what God is doing all around the world through people that are willing to step up and answer the call. And tonight we have another uh, one of those men who have stepped up, him and his family, Scott Marsh, and his wife Jessica, has an have answered the call to go to the Netherlands. And we're looking forward to uh, the great work that they will do on the field uh, for God and what God will do through them. I have a lot easier time uh, introducing them tonight than I did this morning. I think I unfortunately butchered uh, our, our uh, guest name this morning, but it's much easier to introduce Scott and Jessica Marsh. Uh, they were approved as BBFI missionaries in 2008, and they are sent out of Springfield, Missouri. And uh, he may have the hardest time of all of our guests today because he's having to follow up that meal. So please uh, do your best to stay awake and fight off that uh, food coma that we, we may be fighting tonight. But would you give uh, Scott a big welcome? Thanks, man. Well, thank you. Uh, first of all, on behalf of my family, uh, thanks for having us here. Um, there are a lot of missionaries uh, to pick from that are out there trying to raise money that are looking to book churches. Um, and we, man, it's just awesome that you guys have allowed us to come share a heart for ministry. Um, we've only been here for, it's little over a day, a little over 24 hours, and uh, met several people uh, and been able to share my heart for ministry with them. Um, I pray that this evening, after you guys kind of hear a little bit about the country and after we open God's Word, that uh, you would not only be burdened for the country of the Netherlands, uh, but you'll also be burdened with uh, uh, stepping out even more uh, to serve God through, uh, through a life of mission. Uh, so uh, on behalf of my family, my wife Jessica, will you stand up? I want to embarrass you a little bit. Uh, will you wave to everybody? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Uh, on behalf of Jessica, myself, and then we have two girls, Violet and Ruby. Again, just thank you so much for having us. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, we currently are on deputation, which means that we travel around uh, from church to church, basically uh, casting our vision for, for Holland. And, uh, you know, we're looking for financial partners so that we can go over. We fully expect and we are, are praying and uh, we are excited to see God show up uh, and that we are planning to leave to the country of Holland March of next year. So about 12 months left of travel time. And then we are going to be moving to the city of Amsterdam. Uh, and as you can imagine, traveling with two uh, babies, we have a one and a two-year-old, uh, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about ourselves. We've learned really how selfish we are, you know, uh, when you have two kids like that. Uh, but really, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, our kids, they, man, they've taught us so much. And one of the funny things that we've kind of been realizing over the last several months is that kids, specifically younger children and babies, spend the first few years of their life completely avoiding sleep, right? Uh, we, we battled that this afternoon, in fact, at nap time. They, uh, I don't know about you guys, maybe it's just our kids, okay? But they, when it's, when it's bedtime, when it's nap time, they will do anything to avoid it. They'll make up any excuse in the book to not have to go to bed, especially my two-year-old, okay? Uh, but then the funny thing and the irony, the irony to that is we tend to spend the rest of our life trying to make up for it, don't we, right? Uh, the, it was kind of, the joke was cracked about, uh, you know, we've eaten a lot this evening, uh, don't go to sleep on me, okay? Because I know I, my wife, she could go to sleep anywhere, 
anywhere. We, I had this conversation last night with somebody. We, can, we as adults and as you know, teenagers, man, when I was a teenager, I could sleep anywhere. But we kind of have this idea that uh, we can go to sleep and, it's, and we want to and we enjoy sleep and we look forward to naps. Uh, and, and then uh, just maybe a few months ago, it kind of hit me. There's a great spiritual application of that. See, children... In their first few years of life, everything is new and exciting to them. Everything is thrilling. Everything's an adventure to them, right? But then as we get older, life becomes less interesting, right? Why, why else can I just give my kid a blank piece of paper and they're just in awe of a blank white sheet of paper, right? They'll play with that thing for a while or a spoon or some mundane Uh, meaningless object I can give them and they absolutely love it and they're entertained by it because it's new to them right it's an adventure to them they're experiencing something that is awesome but then as we get older you know what a plain piece of paper is worthless to us right life begins to grow mundane and and things aren't as adventurous to us anymore right are you are you tracking with me are you guys understanding what I'm saying spiritually I feel like a lot of Christians are in that same boat. I mean, think about when you first entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about how excited you were to open up this book and to just read it and to learn to hear from God via the Bible. Or think about how awesome it was to approach the creator of the universe through prayer. It was just exciting. I remember when I first got saved, man, everything, the, the church, everything just was, was like just this gigantic adventure that I wanted to be on for the rest of my life. But then as we get older and as we grow, um, you know, Christianity, it's awesome, it's great, but it just becomes a routine, right? It just becomes something that we do and it's less exciting and it's less adventurous. It's, why not take a nap? We're not going to miss anything. And unfortunately, I believe many Christians are spiritually asleep. I believe most Christians are spiritually asleep. When the reality is there are things going on in this world, miracles that are happening. A war is waging. The Bible is clear about it. There's a spiritual war going on that just makes any earthly battle pale in comparison. And incredible things are happening here, around us, in our families, and we're missing it. We're missing out on God's incredible drama, on his incredible adventure of life, because we're sleepwalking. We're sleepwalking. Um, That's kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. Um, I feel like many of us know it, though. Right? I feel like many of us know there's, there's something more to life. Even though, you know, we're a Christian, we come to church, we tithe, we do all the stuff that we're supposed to do, we still kind of feel like there's something more. We're missing out on something. And that's, that's deep within us because God has created us for so much more than what we do. God has created us to do so much more for his kingdom that we actually partake in. Um, I wrote this down. I don't want to mess it up, so I'm going to read it. Uh, But it says, we have this longing deep within us to be a part of something so much bigger than ourselves, yet we're absolutely bored to death. Um, We're bored with our safe, comfortable lives that we have chosen. And unfortunately, the result of that is we sacrifice so much of of what is godly in our lives for secondary sources of me, of things that I want. 
And basically what that means is we take God and we put him aside so we can become more comfortable. You understand what I'm saying? What's the point, Scott? Why? I don't really think it's that big of a deal. I don't, what's the worst that could happen if we continue to live life just kind of biding our time till Jesus comes back? I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. Uh, I come to church. Scott, what is the worst if I'm just sleepwalking through life? What's the worst that could happen? We're going to the country of the Netherlands, the country of Holland. 50, 60 years ago, over half, well over half of the population, depending on where you find your information, 50 to 60% of the Dutch population in the 50s and 60s claimed to be evangelical Christians. They claimed to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and a belief in the gospel. As of 2004, which is seven years, that's the most recent statistic I can find, that's now less than 3%. Less than 3% of the Dutch population will claim a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. One generation, Christianity is completely abolished out of the culture. Completely abolished out of the culture. What happened? We get that question a lot. What happened? Christians fell asleep. We stopped actively engaging the world as if it's God's kingdom that's being built. And we kind of withdraw ourselves from that. And we miss out on absolutely incredible things. If you have that video, I want to show you a video. uh, And then I want to talk just a little bit more about the current state of the Netherlands.
um, <clears throat> what was once one of the most um, Christian continent, or one of the most Christian countries on the continent of Europe, uh, is now one of the most secular societies in the face of the earth. That all happened in one generation. Uh, and as I kind of shared with you, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, um, that took place because Christians stopped fulfilling the mission that God had given them, and the secular world crept in and began to uh, uh, indoctrinate uh, the young people, the younger generation, um, uh, towards negative things, uh, particularly secular humanism, which is an idea or philosophy that basically claims, I, I am God. I am God for me. Uh, I don't need a list of rules. I don't need an authority figure. Uh, that's why a 12-year-old can legally be euthanized over there. Um, it, it's, it's this idea that, that has pretty much ravaged the, the country of Holland that states, I don't need anything or anybody to tell me how to live my life. So I'm going to live it on my own. And the result has been um, the, uh, legal, the legalization of most drugs. Um, if you are 16 years old, you can walk on just about any street corner and walk into a shop, like a store, that will sell you drugs. Um, again, euthanasia is legal. Uh, assisted suicide, ages 12 and up. Prostitution is not just legal. In Holland, that has become a career choice uh, for many young ladies because there is a lot of money in it. They have their own union. They are publicly sponsored by the Dutch government. Um, it, is, uh, it is just a, a very secular very open, anything goes uh, place. And we get all the time, um, and I didn't, even, I didn't even realize, I mean, you, you kind of understand the reputation that, that Amsterdam has, but I didn't realize as a country, uh, especially as a Western Europe, that that was such a needy, such a large mission field. When the reality is, uh, a mission field is somewhere where the gospel needs to be preached. And that's the current state of the Netherlands. We're going to Amsterdam, the capital city. Uh, one and a half million people. Uh, we have researched for about three years looking for churches, looking for people we can get in contact with, uh, really looking for uh, people who are propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've only been able to find five churches. There's a sixth that's currently being established, but it's not, it's not, uh, hasn't been launched yet, but only five churches in the city of Amsterdam, one and a half million people, five churches that preach the gospel. Now, there are a lot of churches but they've gotten away from the gospel, and now it's just a family tradition. And that's the current climate in, in Holland. That's the current climate in the Netherlands. And that's all because, that's all because the world did a better job in reaching the world than Christians did. The world did a better job at reaching the world than Christians did. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, open it up to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and we're just going to be in verses 14 through 17. And what I want to talk to you about this evening, and uh, we'll, be, we'll, we'll be quick, I know we just ate. Um, we're actually going to talk about how as Christians, whoa, how as Christians we can wake up. How as Christians we need to wake up. And understand that there are greater things going on around us that we can even fathom. And understand that God is calling us, okay, not just to come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and maybe give a little bit of money here and there. That's essential. You've got to do that, okay? 
But it's more than that. It's more than that because did you know there are thousands of people, okay, that are sitting on their couch right now watching television. They have no idea that what is going on right now is we are talking about Jesus. I mean, this is, this is a needy place. This is a needy place. Anywhere where there's somebody who does not know Jesus as their Savior, that's a mission field. And we, as Christians, it's our responsibility to, to come and be encouraged within these walls, but to go and be the ambassadors for Christ outside of these walls. And when we fail to do that, devastation will happen. Devastation will happen. Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 14 through 17 says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. There's two um, simple yet profound principles that we can find in this passage uh, that I think will help each and every one of us to essentially wake up. And begin to actively engage the world on behalf of the creator of it. The first principle is this. That we learn from this passage. If we want to wake up, we've got to walk in wisdom. We've got to walk in wisdom. In fact, in this passage, the Apostle Paul, he immediately comes out and he says, Hey guys, we've got to wake up. We've got to get up. We've got to live life on purpose. And live as wise men. And not, as, and not as unwise men. Okay? Now, um, what this passage is not saying, and I think it's very important for us to understand, Paul is not saying we've got to be purposeful with our life by getting as smart as we can. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, there's nothing wrong with being smart. There's nothing wrong with education. That's very important. Okay? But what happens is we tend to kind of take this idea of wisdom whenever the Bible references it and, and how to walk in it as just getting smarter. As just getting smarter. And then what happens is we kind of fill our head with knowledge, but there's no application. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Because Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 tells me that if Scott is left up to his own decision-making, it's going to end badly for me. It's going to end badly for me. In fact, I want to read that. Proverbs 14.12 says, There's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to death. In the end it leads to death. Now, that is basically saying that if I take the smartest person in the world, okay, and I attempt, or if I am, let's just, let's just pretend, okay, if Scott Marsh is the smartest person in the world, and I am left up to my own decision-making, Apart from God, it's still going to end badly for me. It's still going to end badly for me. That's important to understand. Because we've got to separate the idea with walking in wisdom with just being smart. Because this is not man's wisdom. This is a godly wisdom that Paul's referring to. We have to walk in the wisdom of God. So how do we obtain that? How do we get that? That is absolutely essential. If we want to wake up, be purposeful with our life... We've got to walk in wisdom, in a godly wisdom, and we can only do that. Anybody know um, Proverbs, or sorry, Psalms? Um, uh, Psalms chapter, I'm looking for it here. Psalms 111, t- verse 
Anyway, sorry. I, I thought I had it on my notes. I've typed up new, do- new notes. It says the beginning, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of all wisdom. Okay? That is essential for us to understand. Because if we want to do this thing of actually waking up and living on purpose for God, we've got to walk in godly wisdom. But how do we do that? We do that by fearing God. And it's important to also understand that we, in, when it comes to fearing God, that's not just some abstract idea that is thrown out there that we cannot obtain what it actually means in our own life. It's important to understand that we can practically live out every day in our life what it means to fear God. Um, uh, it is often referred to, the fear of the Lord is simply a reverent or ultimate respect for God. And that's true. That is absolutely true. But I recently heard a pastor say, and it actually cleared up to me, because I don't know about you guys, but I have often heard uh, messages on the fear of the Lord, and I'm a practical guy. Uh, I need you to tell me what that means for my own life. Uh, but very few times have, ever, have I ever heard anybody practically apply what it means to fear God day to day in our life. And I recently heard a pastor, and he said this, and I'm going to quote him. He says, this is what it means to fear God, to be terrified at the thought of putting your hope and joy in anything other than God. Think about that for a second. I'm going to say it again. The fear of God is to be terrified at putting your hope and joy in anything other than Him. What do you put your affections in? Do you put your hope and joy, do you put your reason for living in created things or the creator of all things? That's what it means to fear God. And here's practically how it plays out. Um, Man, I love my wife. I love my kids. They're awesome. They're unbelievable. But if if they are my reason for living, guess what? They're going to fail me, as I will them. Do you put your hope and affections in your family? You've got to love your family. I'm not, this is not, for an opportunity for you to say, well, I don't have to love my family. That's not what I'm saying. But when they are your reason for living, they're your motivation for all things, they're going to fail you. Do you place it in your health? Do you place your hope and affections in your health? Because guess what? We're all going to break down. We're all going to break down. My grandfather, okay, he is 80 years old, and as far as I can remember, he has lived on a diet of bacon and coffee. Just bacon and coffee. He's 80 years old, lives in central Florida, and he still does roofing. I mean, this man, he's, he's a maniac. He's a machine. But he's 80, and all he does is eat bacon and, and fatting, fattening foods, okay? But then I also know of men and women my own age, all they do is eat healthy. All they do is work out. They end up dying from health reasons. There are men and women uh, that I respect in the ministry um, that are my age that are dying or have died from brain cancer or some form of cancer. See, guys, the reality is anything we place our hope and affections in other than God is going to fail us. It's going to disappoint us and let us down. And then what are we left with? When we have put everything into those created things, and that has disappointed us and failed us, it's no wonder why people say half of Americans are taking depression medication. Because we put our hope 
and affections, our reason for living in things that God created rather than God. Um, sports teams. Man, I, we're, we're Razorbacks around here, right? Okay? Uh, SEC football, right? I'm, a, I'm not even going to tell you my team, okay? But I'm an SEC football fan, okay? Man, I, I get wrapped up in that stuff. Jessica will tell you, this is probably, I mean, I've obviously put hope and affection in my family, but next to, I mean, forget about my health. I'm a college football guy, okay? Man, when my team loses, I go into depression for like a week, right? I don't know about you guys. That's, that's just me. That's my personality. But guess what? My teams are going to lose all the time. They do lose all the time, okay? And that leaves me just feeling empty inside. And I know that's funny, but the reality is, I mean, that's pointless. That's worthless. That's not why we're here. We're not here to root for a bunch of fat guys in tights running around with the ball. You know what I'm saying? What do you put your hope and affections in? I pray that it's in God. And that's what it means to fear God. It means to have your priorities straight. It means to, to take out your wallet okay, and to look at it and to just kind of loosen your grip and say, you know what, I'm not going to place my hope, my joy, my affections, my reason for living in my pocketbook. I'm going to serve you, God, and whatever. Maybe it's your time. Maybe your time is so valuable to you, you won't even give it up for anybody else. And maybe God's saying, you, you need to come to church and vacuum, volunteer, clean some toilets. My, my point is this. We need to let go of things that we hold so tightly and say, God, whatever you want. Whatever you want, because I know in the end you are better. I know in the end, God, you are so much better than the things that I cling so tightly to. That's what it means to fear God. And if we want to wake up, if we want to stop this Christian slumber and do something incredible in the world, literally turn this world upside down for Christ, if we want to do that, We've got to learn to fear God. That's the first theme. The second theme in this passage, um, and it's a lot shorter than the first theme, so don't, it's not proportionate. So I know you guys are thinking, man, he's only on a second point. Uh, we're, we're getting close, okay? We're getting close. The second theme is this, in verse 16. You want to wake up and actively engage and be actively engaged in God's mission for you. You've got to fear God, and you've got to walk in that. You've got to put God number one. Basic thing we hear all the time, it's absolutely essential to practically play it out in your life. The second thing we see in verse 16 says, we need to redeem the time because the days are evil. We need to redeem the time because the days are evil. And here's, here's the theme. We're not entitled tomorrow, so we must start right now. We're not entitled tomorrow, so we've got to start right now. Uh, being an American... Uh, especially a Christian American, we have entitlement issues, don't we? Right? That's why when we go through the, the drive-through, which is, think about it, it's, you, you, you don't even have to get out of car, your car, okay? You go up to a speaker, and somebody via radio waves is taking your order, and then you drive it to a window and they give it to you. That, I mean, that's crazy. That's laziness, right? Okay? To go eat the most fattening food on the planet. That's just, but to us, that's become so normal that if we don't get there and get out in two minutes, I want my food for free, right? 
That's entitlement issues. That's also why we say things like, we, we think we're entitled tomorrow. We say things like, I'll get around to it. I, another day. Right? We feel like we are owed something. And as Christians, it's really easy, but very sinful, to start thinking this way. God, I come to church. God, I tithe. Um, I'm nice to this person who I really can't stand. God, you owe me something. You owe me health. You owe me happiness. You owe me joy. That's not the way that it works. That's not the way that it works. We have entitlement issues. And that carries over in our relationship with God in this way. Okay, I struggled with this for years. We think, God, this is a busy year for me. It's so busy. Um, I'm not going to be able to spend much time communicating with you in prayer because it's just going to, man, I'm going to be swamped. But I'll get around to it next year. God, I'm not going to be able to have time to talk to you and to hear what you have for me via the Bible. But I want to, I really do, but I'm going to get around to it next week. This is a busy week for me. God, things are tight this year. Uh, I, I, I can't tithe. I don't think I can tithe. I don't think I can afford it. I don't think I can afford missions. Next year, it'll be better. I'm going to get this bonus. And what we do is we put things off. We put off serving God right now for things that, you know, we say, God, I'll do it later. Because we feel like we're entitled to tomorrow. The Bible never says you're entitled to tomorrow. In fact, this passage says, you know what? You need to start right now. You need to buy back the time, redeem the time, right now because the days are evil. You don't know what's going to happen. And I fear that many of us will put off serving God for so long, we're going to be 60, 70, and think, man, I've put God off, and now it's too late. 80, 90, whatever. When the reality is, you know what? God just wants you to start now. God just wants you to start right now. This is a major problem amongst Christians, I feel like. Um, it's what I've been heard referred to as uh, uh, entitlement issues, like, like what I explained to you, how we think we have to tomorrow, so we put off uh, serving God and maturing in our relationship with Christ. We put that off. Um, I've heard it referred to as grown-ups in the kiddie pool. The Apostle Paul refers to it as um, you're still drinking milk when you should be eating meat, right? I mean, think about it. A grown-ups in the kiddie pool, my kids are little. My kids are little. It's cute when they splash around in a kiddie pool, okay? I do not want to see Bob Graham in a kiddie pool. I'm calling the cops if Bob Graham is in the kiddie pool with floaties on. You know what I'm saying? That's just weird. I, I've never seen Bob Graham in a kiddie pool, so I'm not... I'm just saying, if that happens, Bob, we got we to talk, okay? But that, that's where many Christians are. Because we pushing, we're putting off serving God, engaging the world as ambassadors for Christ, we're just kind of putting that off because we feel like we're entitled to tomorrow. And we grow up 5, 10, 15, 25 years as a believer, and we've never matured. We're still drinking the milk. We're still splashing around the kiddie pool. And God wants so much more for us. He wants so much more for us. Um, how does this play out practically? Um, what does this look like in the life of somebody who does it? And then I'm going to just kind of share this story and then we're done. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus is telling the story um, of a man, and I'm going to read it here. 
And I think this story parallels what I just said very well. Um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he had, and buyeth that field. Let me explain it to you this way. This man walks into a field, and Jesus says that treasure within that field, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's what we are to be working towards building. Because that's what God has us here for. Are we aware of that? Let's all make sure we're on the same page. You are not here to do whatever your occupation is. That's good that you're a teacher. That's good that you're a nurse. That's good that you are whatever you are. Okay, And that's important. I'm not saying we all have to be full-time missionaries. Because without supporters, we can't, you know, we can't do what we, what we are called to do. But the reality is, okay, although you might have a secular job, although you might be a teacher or a nurse or whatever it is, uh, that is a secondary mission in your life. Your primary mission as a follower of Jesus Christ is to help him build his kingdom. In whatever way that, that I can't tell you what that looks like in your life. That's between you and God. But God has each and every one of us in a specific place, okay? God's in control of all things. He is sovereign. He has you where you are. And wherever you're at, you are called to be an ambassador for Christ. We're called to help build his kingdom. So this man spies this treasure in the field, and Jesus says that treasure is like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And what does this guy do? What does this guy do? Does he say, well... You know, that's, that's, not, that's awesome. I like that, but I've got some more important things back in my house. The Bible says he hid it, and he ran back, sold everything that he had to purchase that field. Okay? The application is this. The kingdom of God is that important to this man that he sacrificed all of his possessions, everything that he had. I'm not saying you have to go and sell your house and give it to the church. I'm just saying you have to have that heart. You have to have a heart of sacrifice that says, God, I'll do whatever it takes to help you build your kingdom. I'll do whatever it takes. That's what it means to fear God. To let go of things that you love. Things that you just Man, they mean so much to you. Let go of it because you know God is better. This man did that to go purchase the field. But he doesn't dilly-dally around. Okay? I, I feel like the Bible's pretty clear. Like, this was an urgency issue for this man. He hid it. He didn't go to his bank and say, you know, I'll wait for the interest rates to drop a little bit, then I'll get a loan, then I'll go buy the field. You know what I'm saying? This wasn't like, he, he didn't, He wasn't entitled that field. It was an opportunity. It fell in his lap, and he was willing to do it quick. He went, he sold all of his possessions and bought that field. There's a sense of urgency there. We've got to understand that the kingdom of God is so worth it. It's so worth it. And that that man, that man who bought that field, sold everything he had, bought that field, that's the heart of an awakened man. That's an awakened heart. And if we all had that heart, an awakened heart, just like the Dutch people wiped Christianity out of the entire nation in one generation, I believe in one generation, we can bring the authority of Scripture 
right back in to the country of Holland, to any place. The disciples did it. The apostles did it in the Bible. One generation, Christianity, bam, there it is. That's an awakened heart. But I feel like most Christians are asleep. We've got to fear God. We've got to walk in that fear daily by making sure he's number one, by making sure that he is number one on our priority list. And we've got to actively engage his kingdom right now. We can't put it off. We cannot put it off. Let's pray, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Pastor. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals in our life. I pray that it would just not be another item on a, on a list to check off to try to make you happy, but that it would be something that we dig into because we have a desire to change and to grow and to be more like you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, meet together in a group united for the same cause to worship and glorify you. Uh, a lot of countries, we could be killed for doing this right now, God. Thank you for the freedom, the peace of mind that you've given us. I pray that we would not take your mission lightly. I pray that we would be willing to sell everything that we have to buy the field that represents your kingdom. Father, I thank you for this church as, as they love missionaries and as they support missionaries all around the world. God, bless them because of, uh, of what they're doing and their sacrifice and reaching as many people for the kingdom as possible. Thank you so much for everything you've done for us in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother.